Then we'll hey, you can grab a seat. Uh, good morning and welcome to Veritas Church. My name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors and I just want to welcome you and let you know we're really, really grateful uh, that you're here this morning. Uh, if you are new with us, we have been walking in a series through the book of Genesis. And so if you've got your Bible, you can make your way to Genesis chapter 38. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. Uh, on that table over there, you should see some black hardback ones. You can go grab that and keep that. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Genesis 38 is where we're going to be. And if uh, we, we've said it multiple times throughout our series in the book of Genesis, and if you've been here through the series, you've seen uh, that a lot of the stories in Genesis are uh, quite a bit more gritty and graphic than maybe what we remember uh, if we heard them growing up as kids. Uh, and this is definitely one of those stories today. The story that we're looking at today of, of Judah and Tamar, I, I think it's probably up there for probably the grittiest and most graphic story in the book of Genesis. And so because of that, we're going to have to talk pretty frankly today uh, around some areas of sex and sexuality. And so if you've got younger kids in here and uh, you're just not ready to engage in those conversations with them yet, uh, that's totally okay. I think that's probably wise. Uh, and I want you to know that Veritas Kids is still open and would love uh, to have them this morning. You can take them over there. Veritas Kids will receive them. Uh, and, and listen, even the text itself is pretty graphic. We're about to read through it. And so this is, this is your chance. Don't say, I didn't warn you. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. You can uh, drop your kids off while I pray if that's what you want to do. Uh, and then we'll read this text together and see what God might have to say to us through this uh, just wild story. So let me pray for us again, and then we'll jump in. God, uh, thank you for your word, uh, even when uh, as, as gritty and as graphic as a text like this is. Thank you uh, that the beauty of your gospel and your grace shines forth, and so help us to see that this morning. Help us to see the good news on display in this passage uh, for sinners like us uh, who have wrecked our lives, who have made a mess of our lives, yet you have not quit on us. You continue to pursue us, and so help us to see that, Jesus, uh, as we walk through this text with the glory of your gospel shine forth brightly. I pray that it would. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, Genesis 38, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today it speaks to us like this. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and, he, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. 
In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of, of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify who the, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach or what a breakthrough you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, that made uh, Jerry Springer look a little bit tame, didn't it? Uh, when we left off in Genesis last week, uh, we saw that uh, Joseph had been put into a pit and then uh, led by Judah. Judah led the charge to sell his brother Joseph into slavery to some Midianites who took Joseph to Egypt. Uh, and the rest of the book of Genesis is going to focus on Joseph's story in Egypt, but here in this chapter, the camera kind of pans over and shifts away and shifts the focus on to Judah. And, and so it tells us that Judah moves away from his family, and he hooks up with a Canaanite, a pagan, unbelieving woman, and he has uh, three sons with her, Er, Onan, and Shelah, which, d don't name your boy Shelah, like, don't do that to him. Even if you don't really like him, don't do that to him. Uh, but, but his firstborn son, Er, is wicked. Uh, we, we're not really told the specifics of his wickedness. We're just told that he is wicked, uh, and God puts him to death for that. Uh, and, and during this time, there was this law that was later referred to and known as the law of leveret marriage, 
Uh, You can read about this and look this up later in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. But basically what this law said was that if a husband died before he and his wife were able to have children, uh, then his brother was supposed to do what Judah tells Onan to do here and raise up offspring for his brother-in-law, for his brother. Uh, Because God's promise to Abraham was that he would give Abraham and his offspring innumerable descendants. And so as part of your faith and your hope in that promise, you, you didn't want your name to die out in Israel. And so they had this practice where the brother would continue uh, this line and continue his brother's line so that their name would not die out in Israel. And I, I know that practice, it seems really kind of foreign and backwards and weird to us, uh, but this was actually also a means of protection for the woman in this scenario. I, I mean, think about this. This is a patriarchal culture and society. Uh, it's really not like our kind of industrialized free market economy where as a woman you're completely free and able to go out and get a job uh, and you don't need a husband to do that. Uh, that's not how this was. It, there weren't jobs back then for women to go out and to get. And, and besides that, uh, no one was going to want to marry Tamar now that she had already been married. And so they had this law of leveret marriage to ensure that a widowed woman wouldn't be left destitute for the rest of of her life. Uh, but that, that's not what Onan, the next brother, does. Now, I'm almost sure that you have not heard this passage preached on before in church, but if you have, uh, my guess is that your youth pastor probably preached on it as a way to tell you not to masturbate. Uh, in fact, this is such a prevalent interpretation of this text that, that one of the words used to describe masturbation is onanism. I'm sure you did not wake up this morning and think, that's what I'm going to learn about today at church. Uh, And that's a completely different conversation for another day, but that's really not what's going on in this text at all. Uh, This text is much more about Onan's desire to have sex without responsibility or commitment. He, He knows that if he gives Tamar a child, this child won't be named as his, and he doesn't want that. And so the text tells us that whenever he would have sex with her, he would pull out so that she would not get pregnant. And it wasn't just once that this happened. The text tells us whenever he would sleep with her, he would do this. He's being selfish. He wants to have sex with Tamar, but he doesn't want to have to raise a child that won't be named as his. He wants to have sex without any of the commitments and responsibilities that come along with it, Uh, which I think we can probably admit is a pretty modern attitude towards sex, right? Like times may change, but human nature really does not. Uh, By and large, we really don't think that the commitments and responsibilities that God has laid out for sex, the boundaries of where it should take place, are meant to lead us into life and flourishing. We really don't think that will allow us to experience sex as a gift we think we've got to have sex without any of the commitments and responsibilities towards another person if we're really going to experience freedom and life and pleasure from it. But I need you to see, like, God does not feel that way. Verse 10, he, he kills Onan for this. Like, dead. Sexual sin and exploitation of others sexually is a massive deal to God. Every time Onan does this, he further victimizes Tamar. And his refusal to provide for her and his desire to exploit her sexually gets him put to death. And so listen, I just have to tell you, like if, if you are not ready to commit the rest of your life to someone in covenant marriage, you're not ready to have sex with them. 
If you're not ready to raise a child with somebody, you're not ready to have sex with them. Like God has given us the the boundaries for sex that it should take place in the safety of covenant marriage between one man and one woman who have covenanted and committed that we are in this together for better or for worse in sickness and in health till death do us part. God gave us those boundaries as a gift because uh, sex is not just something physical that we do with our bodies. It's deeply spiritual. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that when you have sex with another person, you unite yourself to them and you become one flesh with them. And when you do that with someone that you have not covenanted to and committed the rest of your life to, you are only setting yourself up for heartache and for pain. And when you, like Onan does here, exploit other people sexually for your own pleasure, you're storing up the wrath of God for yourself. Like it's that serious. Uh, but now Judah has put two of his sons in the ground, and instead of stopping to think, you know, maybe we're the problem. Like, maybe my sons are wicked, and that's why God keeps putting them in the dirt. Uh, instead, he thinks Tamar is the problem. It's her fault, and, and so he needs to do something about her. You know, if you keep repeatedly banging your head against a wall, and then you stop and ask, like, why does my head hurt so bad? The answer is not the wall. Like, the wall is not the problem. You don't need to do something about the wall, but yet Judah doesn't think this. He lacks some self-awareness. And so he's like, hey, uh, I don't want to watch another son put another son in the ground. And and so, Tamar, uh, wait until my boy Sheila grows up. When he grows up, I'll give him to you in marriage. Don't call us. We'll call you. You just go home, and we'll get back to you a few years later down the road, and the text tells us he does this without any intention uh, of giving his son to her. And so Tamar goes home, and after a while, Judah's wife dies, and Tamar has heard uh, that Shelah, the third son, has grown up, and obviously she knows that Judah is not going to give this son to her in marriage, and so she hatches a plan. Uh, Once Judah is done mourning, he goes up to Timnah with his boy Hira. Uh, We're really not told why, but I would imagine it's probably to cut loose a little bit. And so uh, uh, Tamar hears about this, and she goes up before him and meets him on the way, uh, dressed up like a prostitute. And I just want to kind of pause here and say, like, you don't do something like that based on a hunch, right? Like, She knows that if she dresses up like a prostitute, Judah is going to sleep with her. And what does that say about Judah's character? That his daughter-in-law knows that if she uh, dresses up as a prostitute, he will sleep with her. And and this is what happens. Like Judah sees her and he thinks she's kind of any old roadside prostitute. And so he says, hey, uh, let me have sex with you. And she's like, well, you're not going to do it for free. What are you going to pay me? And he says, well, I'll pay you a goat, but goats are kind of hard to carry around in your wallet. And so uh, she says, well, yeah, maybe you will, but I'm going to need something as a pledge and some collateral uh, to know that you really are going to pay up and pay me what you owe. And so he says, okay, well, what do you want as collateral? And she says, well, I want your staff and your signet and your cord. Uh, now think of these like kind of like Judah's driver's license, his ID, uh, his passport, his credit cards, his wallet, like things that would easily identify him. And so he gives all this stuff to her. He sleeps with her, and he impregnates her. Uh, She goes back home, takes off this prostitute disguise, gets back in the clothes uh, of 
her widowhood. And Judah goes home as well, and he sends this goat back with his boy Hira uh, to make payment to this prostitute. And uh, when Hira gets to the place where he, he met the prostitute, he can't find her anywhere. And so he asks some people of the town, like, where is she? And uh, they're like, hey, we've, we haven't seen or heard of any prostitute that has been in this area. And so he goes back to Judah, and he's like, hey, I couldn't find her. And, and everybody in the town said they couldn't, had never heard of her either. And so Judah's like, okay, well, we better just drop this. I really don't want people to know that I got outsmarted by a prostitute, and so she can just keep my stuff. Let's just drop it and act like this didn't happen. And so they drop it. Uh, but after a few months, Tamar's pregnancy, she's beginning to show uh, and so Judah hears about this. He hears that Tamar is pregnant. And, and not only does he hear that Tamar is pregnant, he hears that she is pregnant by prostitution. And so he's furious about this. And look again in verse 24 at his immediate response. The end of verse 24, it says, And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. He's kind of taking a page out of the Monty Python book here, right? Like, no deliberation, no thinking about this, just immediate response. She's a prostitute. Burn her. Burn her at the stake. Now listen, is this not the height of hypocrisy? What did Judah do just three months before this? Slept with a woman that he thought was a prostitute. And so in his mind, it's okay for him to do something like this, but it's not okay for Tamar. You see, it was his responsibility to provide a husband for Tamar that would give her offspring, but he failed to do that. He didn't want to do that, and so he jumps at the first chance to get rid of his responsibility, get rid of Tamar, and wash his hands clean of the whole situation. It's absolutely wicked. But they bring Tamar out, and it's a real dramatic scene. You've got to kind of imagine that the fire is already lit, and as they're carrying her towards the fire, at one point she basically says, Stop! Judah, help me identify whose stuff this is. The man whose stuff this is is the man that got me pregnant. And it takes Judah all of about two seconds to recognize, Uh-oh, that's my wallet. That's my credit card. That's my stuff. Oh, crap, the prostitute that I slept with wasn't a prostitute. It was my daughter-in-law, and I'm the father. And look again at how Judah responds to this in verse 26. It says, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So a a few things I want you to notice in Judah's response here. Uh, First, did you notice that Judah said that Tamar is more righteous than he is? That she is more in the right in this situation than he was? Like Judah failed to provide Tamar justice, to render her justice, fulfill his responsibility and obligation towards her, and, and give her what she was due. And he says that that's worse than what Tamar did. And look, in this story, we're really not given God's perspective on the rightness or the wrongness of Tamar's actions. Now, is she a model and an example for us to follow in this? No, of course not. But but if there's anyone in this story who's closer to doing what was right, it was Tamar. Like, she trusted in the promise of God and didn't want their name to die out in Israel. As a Gentile, she wanted to get in on this promise of God. And, And Judah and his sons were the ones victimizing her every time they failed to fulfill their responsibilities towards her. Like she 
she presses Judah to give her justice, to do what was right when he was doing wrong. And listen, Judah rightly recognizes, and remember the way these stories are told, this is God's perspective on the issue as well. Judah rightly recognizes that his failure to love Tamar as his neighbor and provide for her what he was supposed to provide for her is worse than what she did. And so listen, I think the Bible can press on us and challenge us a little bit here if we will let it. It's not like sexual sin is not a big deal. We just literally read about God killing someone for it. But, but what God is saying here that the, is that the failure to love your neighbor and give them justice is just as serious as avoiding sexual sin. And it's actually Judah's failure to love his neighbor and give Tamar justice that's being emphasized as worse here, much more than Tamar's supposed prostitution. Like, this is what he says is worse. This is what he says uh, makes her more righteous than him. Notice that he says that she is more righteous than I am, not because I slept with a prostitute, but because I didn't give her my son, Sheila. I mean, this is just a repeated theme uh, in the prophets. The prophets will condemn the sexual immorality and the social injustice of the Israelites almost in the same breath. They'll say, you're sexually immoral, and you grind the faces of the poor, and you oppress them. And so listen, here's what I need you to hear from this text. Like, do not let the way that the culture has politicized these issues keep you from being obedient to the Word of God. As followers of Jesus, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and so we should refuse to let our political parties tell us that we should only care about one issue instead of another when the Bible very clearly tells us that we should be concerned with both. It is not sexual morality or justice, it's both. And the church has got to be more than just a propaganda arm for either the Republicans or the Democrats that just kind of amplifies their talking points and sprinkles a little bit of Bible on it. Like, listen, our question when faced with an issue should not be, is this a conservative or a liberal position? Is this a Republican or a Democrat position? Our question should be, is this biblical? Is this what God tells us to do? Is this what God cares about? If we allow our political parties to tell us to shrink down our advocacy and concern to only care about what our political parties tell us to care about, if we refuse to critique the areas of our party that don't align with the values of God's kingdom, or if we walk in lockstep with either party, I really don't mean to be too harsh, but we've made our own God. We've made politics our God. Like, God cares about both. Both matter. Sexual morality and justice and loving your neighbor and rendering justice to your neighbor as much as you are able. Both deeply matter to God and so they should deeply matter to us. That's the first thing we see in Judah's response. But the second thing that we see in Judah's response is that he is just an incredible example of what it looks like to repent here. I mean, this is a beautiful model of repentance. Think about this. Like, Judah is an awful guy, and he has been for a really long time. This story covers the time period from him moving away from his family to uh, giving, uh, raising three sons uh, until the oldest one is grown. And so we're probably talking about a time span and period of at least like 15 to 20 years. And, and over those couple of decades, 
Judah has led the charge to sell his brother Joseph into slavery unjustly. Uh, He has moved away from his family and married a pagan Canaanite unbelieving woman. He raised two wicked sons that God had to put in the dirt for their wickedness. Uh, He failed to give Tamar what she was due and fulfill his responsibilities towards her. And, And then he slept with her and impregnated her, thinking she was a roadside prostitute. He has been horrible, terrible. But when Tamar exposes him in his hypocrisy and sin, did you notice what he did? He repents. He truly repents. He does not try to shift the blame. He does not downplay the significance of what he did. He does not make any excuses for it. He does not say, well, you know, she wasn't dressed modestly and she was a stumbling block to me. She made me lust after her. If she wouldn't have been dressed like a prostitute, I wouldn't have slept with her. He does not say, you know, I was lonely or I was tired or just work's been so stressful lately. Everything has been so hard in my life. No, he says, I was wrong. I didn't do what was right. I failed to do what I should have done. I sinned against her, and she is more right in this situation than I am. He truly repents. And look again at what it says at the end of verse 26. It says that Judah did not sleep with her again. That's in there to show us that he actually did repent. Now listen, I'm not saying that you won't ever struggle habitually with a sin. You will. And I'm not saying that every time you stumble back into a sin, it means that you're not truly repentant. But what I am saying is that repentance is a whole lot more than you just saying, oh, I screwed up. I I messed this one up. Repentance is changing. It's turning away from sin and turning to Jesus and then bearing the fruits of that by not walking in it as much anymore. Now listen, once again, That does not mean that that's going to happen where you'll never do that sin again the first time you repent of it or that you won't have sins that you struggle with habitually. But if if you're years along in this thing and not showing any signs or fruit of repentance, and maybe you actually haven't repented over your sin, maybe you've just been much more concerned uh, with the consequences of it or that you got caught. And, And wanting to avoid the consequences of your sin is much different than being broken and repentant over it. And so I'll, I'll just ask you a question that has really been convicting me this week. Does your normal pattern of repentance look like Judas does here? Like would, would the people closest to you say, yeah, when, when they repent over something, they generally own up to it. Like they don't try to make excuses for it. They don't try to shift the blame. They don't downplay what they did. They just own it. Or, or maybe an even more convicting question Would the people closest to you say, like, yeah, when they repent over something, generally they change. They stop doing it as much. They actually repent. They grow and they don't walk in it as often anymore. When's the last time you repented to a spouse or to a child or uh, to one of your friends that you sinned against in in the way that Judah does? Just saying, hey, I'm sorry about that. I was in the wrong there. I sinned against you. I shouldn't have done that. And I don't want to do that anymore. By the grace of God, I want to change. When's the last time you repented to someone without any conditions, without any shifting of the blame or downplaying what you did or making excuses with no ifs, ands, or buts? When's the last time you repented to somebody without giving a justification for why you did the thing in the first place and why it's really not that big of a deal? 
uh, Judah gives us a beautiful model of what it looks like to repent here. Um, but it's actually the end of this story that, that shows us both the good news of the gospel and where the power to actually repent and change like that comes from. Uh, because as we've been walking through this story, uh, I'm sure you have been wondering, like, why in the world is this even in the Bible? Uh, why do we need to get something like this? It seems totally unnecessary uh, coming right in the middle of the Joseph story. It feels totally random, like somebody spliced in a clip from Jerry Springer into a Lord of the Rings movie. It, it feels like it's purposeless, but it's not. It's not random. God put it in here on purpose, and God wants to show us the beauty of the gospel through this story. And here's how. I know over the past few weeks when we first met Joseph, he looks like an arrogant teenage punk, and he is. But for the rest of this book of Genesis, he's going to look awesome. And he's basically going to always do what is right. We'll begin to see it next week when he uh, is gets into Egypt where he's a slave. He's faithful in Potiphar's house, and he's faithful in the prison when he's unjustly put there. He's faithful when he's raised up to the right hand of the king. He provides bread and life and food for the nations during a famine. He forgives his brothers who had sinned against him and, and thrown him and sold him into slavery. He, he basically always does what is right. And, and so I'm not the first to point this out, but as we read the book of Genesis and we see that, everything in us just kind of naturally begins to think, okay, Joseph is the one that God is going to continue this line of promise through. Joseph is going to be the one that God uses. The line will go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph will be the one that God chooses because he's not a moral degenerate like Judah was. Uh, he is the one that God will do this through. Because look, uh, by and large, in our sinful nature, by default, we just kind of relate to God based on our performance. And so we think, yeah, of course God is going to choose Joseph. He's an awesome God. But that's not what happened. I mean, think again about the end of the story, what we just read in verses 27 through 30. Uh, this story of two twins wrestling in the womb. Where, where have we heard something like this before? It sounds just like Jacob and Esau, right? Right. And by alluding back to this and, and echoing this, I think God's trying to show us uh, that that the line of promise, that the Savior is going to come into the world, not through Joseph, but through this part of the family. It's actually through this story that Jesus comes into the world. It's this son, Perez, this breakthrough son, is going to be the one that continues the line through which Jesus eventually comes into the world. Listen to the words of Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' family tree. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Here's why this is such good news. We all kind of expect Joseph to be the one, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're much more like Judah than Joseph, are we not? Like we are sinners, who have done things wrong. We are sexually broken. We have exploited others. We have failed to fulfill our responsibilities and give others justice. We have failed to love our neighbors. And if God just chose and used the Josephs of the world, the one who look awesome and almost always get it right, you and I would be left 
without hope. But that's not the way that God works. It's this story of Judah and Tamar and all of its shock and sin and brokenness that gets put smack dab into the middle of Jesus' family tree. It's this story with all of this brokenness that Jesus comes into the world through. Like Jesus is not ashamed to come into the world through Judah and Tamar because sinners are the whole reason that Jesus is coming into the world. It's His death on the cross that will cleanse sinners like Judah and you and me. This story is not too dirty for Him. And so listen, you should take heart. If Judah of all people gets into the family tree of Jesus, man, then I think there might just be a spot available for you. Judah is awful. And he gets in. He makes it. Listen, the grace of Jesus means that there is room for anyone, anyone who will simply repent of their sins and come to Jesus and put their trust in Him. It's open for anyone who will do so. And so listen, have you committed horrific amounts of sexual sin? Have you basically lived your life in rebellion against God for decades now? Do you have a past or even a present that if we heard about it, it would make all of us blush? Well, here's the good news. No matter what you've done, if you've visited a prostitute, if you've been a prostitute, if you've participated in the sexual exploitation of others by watching pornography night after night after night, if you have lied, if you have cheated, if you have defrauded others, if you have failed to love your neighbor, if you have been a sinner, the good news is that you have not written yourself out of God's story. God is not done with you. He has a place for you in His family. Man, I just love the way that Martin Luther puts it. He says, Jesus is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, He even puts them in His family tree. The the truth, the story of Judah and Tamar, it's just shouting the truth of Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. Is not ashamed to say, yeah, He's my family. She's My family, Jesus spent his ministry on earth eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and declaring the grace of God to them that they had a place in God's family. And then he went to the cross and died for them and died for us to give us a place in God's family. On the cross, he was judged as a liar, as a prostitute, as a sexual exploiter, as a a cheater, as a sinner, and as unrighteous so that we would not have to be. He died on the tree to bring us and put us into his family tree. This is what he has done. And so look, I just don't really care how bad you've been. God's grace is just bigger than your sin. Like It's actually pride on your part to think that it's not and to think that your sin is too big or too dirty for Jesus to forgive. You're shrinking Him down to your size, but He's just so much bigger than that. Like I don't care what you've done or how bad you've been. You can bring all of your brokenness and sin to Jesus and He will redeem it. He will make you new. And the good news is that God does not just forgive our sin and bring us into His family. He actually changes sinners and uses them in His mission. That's what He does here with Judah. Judah goes from being this awful, degenerate guy 
to a man who just a few chapters after this is going to be willing to give up his life as a substitute for his brother Benjamin. He's willing to die so that his brother Benjamin would not have to. Like God is not done with Judah. He changes him and he makes him new and he's offering the same thing for you. He's still got good purposes for you. I just want to keep bringing you back to this. You have not written yourself out of God's story. And I know how easy it is to think, yeah, maybe God can save me, and maybe God can put up with me, but there's no way he could really use someone as broken and as sinful as me. Like, there's just no way. I've made too much of a mess of my life. I'm too broken. I've been divorced. I had an affair. I had an abortion. I pressured somebody to have an abortion. I'm addicted to pornography. I cheat. I lie. I hate and fear others. I don't love my neighbors. Uh, There's just no way that God could use someone as broken and as sinful as me. Like, yeah, maybe there's a spot on the team for me, but I'm just going to have to stay on the bench the rest of my life. Listen, it's a lie from the devil. Don't believe it. Man, surely this story and the rest of the Bible, the entire Bible is showing you that the only people that God uses are sinners. The only people that God uses are people who are broken like this. I don't care what you've done. God can move. He can change. He can redeem. He can make you completely new. If He can do this with Judah of all people, then I'm confident that He can save you and He can change you. And he can transform you and give you a place in his mission. I mean, listen, some of the best part of what makes the good news good news is that Jesus meets us where we are, but he does not leave us where we are. Like real, deep, lasting change is available because of Jesus. And it's the grace of Jesus that actually leads us to repentance because the grace of Jesus shows us that there's nothing that we'll bring out There's nothing of our sin that we will expose that hasn't already been exposed and covered by Jesus on the cross. And so just repent and own it and come in. Come receive the grace of Jesus, this grace that has the power to transform you and make you completely new. I mean, do you think anyone who was watching this story unfold as Judah comes to the realization that he had impregnated his own daughter-in-law Do you think anyone seeing this could have known and would have thought that God was going to change Judah into a man of integrity who was willing to lay his life down so that his brother would not have to? No, of course not, but that's what God did. And so maybe this is where you're at. Maybe you're stuck in sin like Judah and you you really can't see a way out for yourself. God can. God can. And would you believe the grace to change that this passage puts on display is for you as well? God is trying to use this story to spark some hope up in you that that whatever you might have walked in this room with, it, it doesn't have to be the end of your story. God can change. God can redeem. God can make all things new. And so I would just encourage you and take the step that Judah takes here. Maybe there's something that God is bringing to your mind that you need to repent of, both to God and to others. Would you take that step today? Would you just own that and open that up and and repent of that sin? Listen, there's so much grace to change waiting for you there 
if you will do so. The grace of Jesus is there for you. Come repent and receive it. That's how you have a breakthrough. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news. that out of the darkness and wickedness uh, on display in this passage, your grace and your gospel just shines forth all the more brightly. Thank you that there is good news for Judas like us who have made a mess of our lives, who have not done what is right, who haven't been faithful, who have sinned and have uh, failed to do what is right in so many different ways. Thank you that there is a place for us in your family and in your story, that you are not done with us, that you have good work and good purposes up for us to still do. Jesus, thank you that you don't just save us, you change us, and you make us completely new. You make all things new in our lives. So would you do this? Would you do this even now, starting today? I pray that there would if there's areas in our hearts where we need to repent, we need to just own up to something we've done, God, would you give us the grace to do so? In the power of your gospel, would you give us the grace to move forward and open up and own that so that we can walk in freedom and healing? Jesus, our life as your followers is meant to be one of continually repenting, continually coming back to you. And so would you help us to do so? Would you help us to know that repentance is a grace that you give us to walk in freedom and to walk in the light? Do that in us even now. In your name, amen.